Hi, I'm Peter Harper, the Managing Director and CEO of Asena Advisors, and this is the Three Pillars Podcast. The objective of the Three Pillars Podcast is to shine a light on the value of a family office and how it can perpetuate wealth creation, preservation, and education, and the value of being purpose-driven. Okay, Steve Martini, thank you for joining me here today on the uh, Three Pillars podcast. Um, today, I want to talk about taxes as part of, uh, of our operational pillar. So for folks that are um, dialing in uh, for the first time, uh, the podcast is focused around the pillars that we think are essential you know, to the uh, to the idea of a, a multi-family office, or as, as Steve and I were just talking about, a multi-advisor uh, family office, uh, which we think is you know, probably more more apt description um, uh, for a lot of folks. And um, you know, within that category, how uh, people should be thinking about your risk weighting when it comes to their, their approach to sort of tax, tax planning and, and taxes in general. So Steve, do you just mind uh, giving everyone a bit of an introduction about yourself and your business? Yeah, sure. Martini Akpovi Partners is a 50 person Encino, California based uh, accounting firm, uh, full service firm serving uh, people who have already had liquidity events, small middle market companies, trust in the state. We also have a, an M&A practice. So some of the issues you're raising are a very common occurrence for us because we've gone through clients with $5 million liquidity events. We've gone through clients with $100 million plus liquidity events. You know, most are in the five to $50 million size. And so this is a common discussion that we're having with our clients. Yeah, I mean it, it's um, it's uh, it's one of the things that I you know we we, we see regularly and as far as a, a, a challenge is just getting folks you know if if they're going through um, they're going through a substantial life event or a substantial liquidity event their approach to risk has to change dramatically. It, I find right because you know at one point maybe their life has had had a whole lot, whole lot less complexity than it does today as a result of the, the transaction. Um, how Steve have you seen um, those challenges around risk uh, impact clients, and how do you try and encourage them to 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 think about them and deal with them? Well, you know, there's two different kinds of situations. You know, uh, the hope for situation which is they've engaged somebody like you or myself early, you know, a couple of three years out from the expected liquidity event, because then it gives us time to work with them, put certain processes in place and help prepare them for what they hope is going to be coming in a couple of three years. doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes we get brought in, you know, three months prior to liquidity event, then it's, it's a lot harder. One of the terms I use a lot in this is, you know, there's, 
you're going through two phases. One, when you're operating, you've been successful, but you haven't established a large, certainly liquid net worth. And that requires a different type of planning uh, and risk taking, because uh, you want to put things and structures in place, but you don't want to put anything in place too radical that would possibly affect the upcoming liquidity event. So you don't want to get anything, you want tax efficiency, but you want for the buyer to be able to come in, understand what you're doing. That's step one. And the expression I always use there is, you know, on an aggressiveness scale, at that place, you probably want to be somewhere around a five or a six aggressiveness. You don't need much more than that. And you don't want to take the risk and make things too complex for yourself. Once you've had the liquidity event, I think us as a firm was still relatively conservative, but I think at that point, because the tax dollars are so much more material, uh, because now you've built your team for sure of multiple advisors, you can be a little more aggressive. You know, again, the tax benefits are more material. At that point, I still tell people step it up maybe to a seven or an eight, because I think nine or 10 is not comfortable a audit risk um, and not comfortable as far as the risk reward. So we always tell people at that point, seven to eight aggressive, be prudent, think about the impact still of, and, and the risk involved. But at that point, again, dollars are more material. You, you probably want to step it up a little bit and get, you know, get a little more creative. How do you find, or you mean you mentioned audit uh, audit risk levels you can give? How, how do you find that some of these choices can impact, you know, two things: one, valuation, right? If there's been been sort of overly aggressive strategies implemented in a in a in a business prior to liquidity, man, it'd be interesting to to understand how yeah. you've seen that impact it, and 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 then audit risk. What what role does that play in a client's world? I I, I think what happens. You know, and the, and the, the couple of the stumbling blocks I've seen is, one, you want to be aggressive in your compliance. Here in the States, the state nexus issue is, is a big deal. Companies are very, very engaged and involved. Companies might not necessarily always want to know they have to, you know, they're based in California, but you know, you have to file in New York City because of A, B, or C, and sometimes they won't. And we've seen that become a hindrance in deals because the buy side always wants to know your compliance is spot on. Then we've seen situations with, you know, offshore captive insurance. There's some really aggressive, you know, positions you can take, but, you know, depending on who the buyer is, a lot of times, they're, they're not going to like that. And then in due diligence, it'll be an ad back. It'll negatively affect the deal. The buyer might escrow more money to protect them for a couple of years post-transaction. So that's, that's kind of the line where I say, again, that five or six, now's not the time to do the micro-captive, which, by the way, the IRS has published that they want to come out in audits. You know, they're... Sure. It, you, you attach a very, very ugly form to your return to say you're participating in a micro-captive and you've created tremendous audit risk for yourself. 
And if you're worried about it, you can only imagine what the buyer is going to be worried about if once they acquire this company and what's going to happen to them two years out. So that's, I think. A have have you ever seen audit or any of this stuff like a, a impact a deal to the point where the deal hasn't happened? Or, or is it always just been an impact evaluation rather than someone saying, hey, listen, this is too. It, I, the main thing I've seen it is in reps and warranties. I've seen it affect the valuation. And for sure, I've seen it affect the escrow hold on a standard deal. The escrow account might be 5 to 10%. I've seen it bumped up materially because of certain risk factors. I've seen the buyers put in a position where they can take less cash off the table and they have to do a more rollover equity. And one of my pet expressions from my clients when we represent them on the sell side is, whatever you get in cash, make sure you're happy with, because you should really go into this deal assuming this is all you're getting. Sure. Because anything on an earn out or rollover equity is totally on the come. And that number certainly increases depending on things like structure, audit risk, et cetera. Sure. I mean, it's really interesting, um, you know, I've uh, been working in a couple of deals recently where the, you know, the, where there's you know, a lot of weighting that's been put around certain sort of growth factors, or, you know, revenue and EBITDA growth. And you know, a lot of times these things might be counter to the, you know, the business plan that is you know, being pushed forward by an acquirer, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, I think one thing that sort of that, that I think about is that you don't actually know how much really the buyers thinks they're going to pay for something. Right. And a lot of that stuff can be baked into the back end, Right. So they're, they're thinking, as you said, um, you should be happy with what you're getting up front because that, that may be what it's, what the buyer thinks they're going to pay for the pay for the well, deal. And, and the other thing is obviously we're in a challenging environment deal wise now anyway, with COVID, so you're seeing a lot of deals more back-end geared. You're seeing some valuations. To, you know, let's say for most of the industries, or you know, the multiples got a little softer. Some it's gone higher, but for the most part, they're a little softer and just a lot more on the earnout side. So if you take that environment, I don't think, and, and you know, you I don't think you want to add to it sure. at, at least at this point. Yep, that's that's great. Um, so, um, so Steve, um, uh, you know, we were just touching on uh, before, you know, the the, the importance of uh, building out a strong, you know, advisor team for for a multi advisor family office. Um, can you talk about ways in which you've seen that work really, really well for folks that have just had a major life change, major liquidity event? And also the role of, you know, a controller, you know, in that sort of, in that team for a family that may not have had that support previously? Well, I think those are, you know, those are two great things to highlight. I think the value of the team may be a little more obvious, but uh, a good team of trusted advisors, the, the CPA, corporate counsel, trust and estate counsel, investment advisor, insurance advisor, they're, they're working together. You know, it's not, you know, let's say, quote, unquote, a, a family office where it's all in-house, 
but good experienced teams, especially teams like that that have worked together before, offline they're bouncing ideas off each other. You know, they're kicking things around. They all have experience, not just with the client, but with each other. And so it's, it's all, so much stuff goes on behind the scenes that they'll bounce ideas, they'll check each other, and they'll help put together a, a plan, one cohesive plan that makes sense and really you know, kind of ties the family with a path going forward. And then the nice thing, you know, assuming there's enough net worth there of having that internal, could be a controller, could be an accounting manager, is you have somebody with that financial expertise to help them execute on it, to make sure, yeah, we've put this trust in the state and we have these insurance policies tied to these trusts and yes, these policies need to be paid with separate property funds, depending on what state you're in. All these things a lot of times are beyond the reach of the most entrepreneurs who, quite frankly, in my experience, usually not the financial people. They're the idea people, they're the sales people, they're that person. They're usually not the accountant of the family. Sure. So having that internal component, especially once you've had the liquidity event, just really helps the trusted advisor team and the family execute on the advice. So that's, that's really, really valuable. Having those two components is, is wonderful. And you think it reduces, it reduces risk. I mean, I think, you know, we were talking about this, this earlier. I think that, you know, I, I find that when you've got that key person involved, um, it's more likely that the family has a, proper grasp of this that they're taking on yeah because you know that's somebody that they can talk to every day you know they're not going to be talking to me or you necessarily every day but they need somebody there because that internal financial person is also going to follow up and explain and know this is why we have to do it this way and we have this entity and this second and third homes and they're in llc's it's going to get you know not even for the 100 million plus family, but for the 15 to 50 million, there's, there's some complexities involved to be efficient, uh, reduce audit risk by making sure funds flow is proper. These are all things that are helpful to execute on. And even if it's not a full-time in-house controller, there are groups you and I work with that can kind of take on that responsibility for these, you know, for these families. And then that becomes part of the team. Awesome. That's a great answer. Well, Steve, uh, thanks very much for, for dropping by today. I really appreciate it. It's great talking. You too, buddy. Great catching up. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'll see you soon.
That was another episode of the Three Pillars podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. You can find more information about our firm at asceneradvisors.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for frequent updates and weekly blogs. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast whenever you're listening and check in every Wednesday for another episode. This has been the Three Pillars podcast.